Hello. I wonder, have you ever been overcome with grief? Now, it's unfortunate that in, in this life, we're going to lose one person. We're going to lose a loved one. We're going to lose our neighbors. And always, it's important to have an idea of how to overcome that, how to come out of it. Now, we have a guest today who's going to tell us about overcoming, overcoming grief. And this is Now Tell Us, and I'm your host, Anthony Mwerore. And very soon, we are going to meet with our special guest today, whose name is Estelle Park. She's going to be here to tell us about everything that she can in this episode that is going to leave us, just as all the others before, enlightened, inspired, maybe more educated. So without taking one more minute, I'm going to go and join our guest, and I welcome you to come with me to go and meet our guest today. Here we go. This is Now Tell Us, your host, Anthony. Let's go. Hello, Estelle. Good morning, Anthony. How are you this morning? I'm fine. How about you? Yes, not too bad. I'm just greeting you from Australia. Wow, that's beautiful. What time is it there right now? It's just almost seven o'clock in the morning. Mm. Seven o'clock. Whatever day it is, Tuesday. Tuesday, it's seven a.m. Wow. Yes. I am in another day. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah, it's Monday. We meet up. It's Monday. It's no, no, no. It's Tuesday here. I assure you. <laughs> no, no, no. Here is Monday. So we are actually this. This life is interesting. There are people who it live on, on different days at the same time. Yes. It's interesting, all right, isn't it? Yeah, I'm in Athens, Greece, and it's just about 11 p.m. Right. Well, you'll be ready to go to sleep, and I'm just waking up. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Now, we have people who are watching us, I know, and uh, or listening to us, and after we are through, we, we're still going to have people who are going to listen and hear us. And so whatever time it is, wherever you are, please we thank you for watching and we need your feedback if you have a question send us if you have a comment comment and we appreciate we always appreciate now our guest today is a great guest and we are going to learn more about her and her story the story that she's brought with us about overcoming grief now who is there still now we see that you you have quite a lot, and I like being with people who I see need some respect because they have been there, done that, seen that, and experienced quite a lot. Who is Estelle? 
Well, I am a great grandmother of five. Wow. I, I started out as being a mother of three. Mm -hmm. I have a daughter called Trina, a son, Toddy, and my third child was my son, Cameron. Cam Cameron was just remarkable. <laughs> I mean, my daughter was remarkable. Toddy is, mm, okay, okay, over the top. But when Cameron was born, we had all sorts of difficulties. This baby was 20 days late. He was sort of upside down and inside out. I was in labour for 27 hours. And then the doctor amazingly said to me, well, your baby has had no heartbeat or pulse for 13 hours. He cannot possibly be alive. And there's no way we can get this baby out because the doctor had ordered the theatre for a caesarean for me five times. And each time the result was, no, we've checked out your lungs. And if you have a caesarean, your lungs will collapse and you'll die on the table. So mm. he said, because your baby is obviously not alive, the only thing we can really do is cut up this baby and take him out piece by piece. And I thought, good gracious, do they really do that? And are they about to do that to me and my baby? And yes, they were. So I said to my husband who was there in the labour ward with me, I think you better go and ring up the men at church because they'll be having their once a month prayer breakfast and get them to stop eating their cornflakes and start praying for the birth of this baby. I mean, really, we can't have our child cut up and taken out in pieces. Surely not. So off he went, and he looked very relieved to be able to get out of that room, believe you me. Anyway, when he was coming back, I was watching the nurses because the doctor had put all of the evil-looking instruments he was going to use on the baby mm. on the bench there, and the nurses were Velcroing up the doctor's coat, and the doctor had his back to me. And right then, Cameron was born. He just shot out. Nobody was ready to catch him, and he almost landed on the floor. My husband came in, and, and there's the baby. Well, one of the nurses grabbed him and took him out the back where they unwound the cord, which had been around his neck three times. He wasn't breathing but they quickly gave him oxygen, checked him out and brought him back. And a very startled-looking startled nurse said to me, you have a son and he seems to be all right. So that was Cameron's entrance into the world. But I thought to myself, this kid's not going to just be ordinary. He was born straight into the prayers of those men at church. So we're going to expect something different from this one. Well, you do expect something different from a child that you've just been told is going to be chopped up into pieces and mm. here he is in one piece and alive and moving. So I thought, okay, well, right, what do we do with this one? Well, we took him home and he, he grew. He was he was 10 pound two and a half when he was born, so he was a very big baby. He was sort of the size of a three-month-old on day one. Anyway, he, he grew and he managed to reach all of his milestones. And then by the time he was 11 months old, I was waiting for his first sentence because although I'd missed my daughter's first sentence because I was teaching when she said it, my son Toddy 
had announced to me at 10 months old as he lay in his bouncer net and I walked past him, he had said, put the fan on one. And so I quickly did put the fan on one, but I, I thought it was such a telling thing, his first sentence, because now he's a multi, multi-millionaire businessman and he rejoices in having staff who will run around and do everything for his comfort. So put the fan on one was a great first sentence for Toddy. But then there was Cameron. When he was 11 months old, it was Toddy's fifth birthday and various people were gathered to celebrate his birthday. Cameron was sitting up in his high chair and he picked up his teaspoon and tapped the tray of his high, high chair, got everybody's attention and declared, God's not dead. And that's how he lived his whole life. He only lived 14 years, but he lived his whole life proving that God's not dead. So I thought, righto, right, well, this one is different. He was so different that at age three, he was about up to my knee or something, little tiny thing. At age three, he came out of his bedroom, dressed in his pyjamas and said to me, Mum, why do they do the pictures of Jesus with the nail prints there and there when they are really there and there? And I looked at him and said, are they, Cameron? How do you know? And he said, Mum, when Jesus was in my room last night and he held out his hands and he smiled at me, I saw them. They're there and there. Now, what do you do with that child? He, he was different, all right. Yes, he was. And when he was only young, really oh, about five or six, he started talking to me about his friend Sonia. And he'd say things that Sonia had told him or Sonia had taught him. And I'm thinking, my word, this Sonia's very, very bright. I don't know where Sonia gets all this information from. But I thought Sonia, of course, was a girl because Sonia is a girl's name. Well, it is in Australia anyway. So yeah. I, I'm thinking yeah. Sonia's a girl. And Cameron would always say things giving high praise to Sonia. And then there came the day when he was nine years old and he came home from school on the school bus which wasn't unusual for him. And I was waiting outside and I saw him sitting there on the bus. Then as the bus pulled up outside our place, he got up and walked down the aisle and prepared to get off the bus. And he came in and he said to me, Mum, Sonia's so rude. And I thought, wow, that's a whole new thing for you. What in the world can Sonia have done? And I said, what do you mean Sonia's so rude? You always praise Sonia. And he said, well, Sonia brought Michael along and they talked across the top of my head. I might as well have not been there. And I said, but Cameron, I saw you on the school bus. You didn't have any girl sitting next to you. And he said, no, Mum, I just had Sonia and Michael. And I said, well, isn't Sonia a girl? And he said, oh, no, Mum. And he said, Mum, doesn't everybody have a guardian angel they can see and talk to? I said, well, no. He said, well, Sonia's my guardian angel. And I said, well, I didn't see any guardian angels either. Where was Sonia sitting? And he said, Sonia was sitting on my shoulder. And I said, well, where was Michael sitting? Michael was on the other shoulder. They talked across the top of my head. I might as well have not been there. And I said, oh, goodness. 
I said, well, who's this Michael? And he said, Mum, you know Michael the Archangel in the Bible? I said, yes. Was he riding on the school bus? And Cameron said, yes, he, he was on my shoulder. Sonia was on the other shoulder. And all I could think to say to him was, well, I bet those two didn't buy a bus ticket to go on that bus, did they? And he said, no, Mum, they didn't. And I thought, well, this is this Sonia is Cameron's guardian angel. He's been plugged into listening to whatever the guardian angel's been telling him for, mm. for you know, most of his life. Oh, how remarkable is that? And Cameron grew and grew. He became an athlete. We were looking to see what, what sort of um, interest he would follow. His sister, his elder sister, is a tremendous academic. She is very, very bright. She could read the morning newspaper at 14 months old, just so clever. And then Toddy is very, very good with his hands. Anything to do with fixing something, he can do it. And then we wondered with Cameron, he, he certainly didn't look like he was going to be the world's best mathematician or anything, but he he actually became an athlete. And when he was killed at age 14, he was running state times in 100 metres, or also 50, 50 metres, 100 metres, 200 metres, 400, 800, 1500, three kilometres, five kilometres, eight kilometres. He was the cross-country champion and a cycling champion. So that was his niche. But in the meantime, we had him walking and talking with angels. Mm. Then when he, he got to be 13, he said to me one day, Mum, this getting prayed for stuff at church just doesn't work. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you'd be the last one of my kids I'd expect to hear that from. And I said, why? What's going on? And he said, well, I've been prayed for three times for insomnia and I still can't sleep. And I said to him, well, why can't you sleep? And he said, I can't sleep for the light. And I said, oh, well, maybe his room didn't have bright and dark curtains so I said maybe I'll buy some dark curtain material and I'll get my friend to sew some curtains for your room and he being a cheeky monkey said well mother that's a good idea considering your friend sews with a sewing machine and you sew with a stapler so yes friend sewed the curtains mm -hmm. and after he'd had his first night in the room with these dark curtains, I went in to get him up for school the next morning and I could barely see. I, I, it was like a cave and I'm saying, Cameron, Cameron, where are you? And he said, I'm over here on the, sitting on the bed. And I said, well, I couldn't see you. It's really dark in here. Those curtains are very dark. Now, don't tell me you couldn't sleep. And he said, Mum, I couldn't sleep. And I said, well, it won't be for the light. And he said, Mum, I couldn't sleep for the light. And I said, Cameron. How can you possibly not sleep for the light when it's like a cave in here? And he said, Mum, when Jesus is in your room all night, he fills it with light and he fills it with power and you just can't sleep. Oh, so I thought, right, well, that's the end of that, that we can't do anything more with this room. So mm -hmm. I said to him, well, what do you do all night when Jesus is in your room filling it with light and filling it with power? And he said, Mum, I just lie there on my bed and he said, I try to breathe all the power in as much as I can get. 
I want it all inside of me. So I thought, well, that's not going to be a bad thing, surely. And off he would go to school. And he one day he said to me, Mum, I need to take a couple of pages of the Bible with me to school because I'm just at a state high school and I like to talk to the kids there. They come and ask me questions about Jesus. And he said, I really need to have a couple of pages of the Bible on me. So he, he said, I just ripped a couple of pages out of Revelation because he said, Revelation's the last book in the Bible. So it's got to be the closest one to heaven. How he worked that out, I have no idea. But he said, I'll just put these pages in my pocket. But don't worry, Mum, I won't, I won't blow my nose on them or anything. I'll remember that they're pages of God's word. So off he went very happily with his pages out of the Bible. And then he got to be 14 and he was still running like an absolute whirlwind and riding his, his uh, he'd ride his bike 100 kilometres every weekend and the leg muscles were important to him. He'd always be doing exercises for his leg muscles. And mm -hmm. he'd just say to me, Mum, the leg muscles are important. So that was something that I had to remember from Cameron. Then we got to a weekend where we had uh, three nights and four days at the Sunshine Coast in a resort. And by this time it was February 1994. Cameron had now started... He'd had three days at a Christian high school because he wanted to be there. He said, Mum, Mum, I, I really want to go to a Christian school because he said, Mum, I'm going to go home to heaven soon. And when people say to me, what were you doing on earth before you came home to heaven? What are you going to tell us? And he said, I don't want to just have to say, oh, well, I was going to the state high school down the road. I'd like to at least be able to say I was going to a Christian high school. He said, Mum, I know they cost money and I'll get a job working at the golf club up the road doing the gardening or something. I said, no, you won't. If you want to go that much, I'll pay for you. You'll go to a Christian high school. So he, we got the prospectus things and he went through them and worked out where he wanted to go. And, yes, he was going to go there. And so we were having a little mini break first because at the state high school at the end of his year eight, he had done particularly badly in maths. He always did, but I think it was because he didn't get oxygen sufficiently when mm. he was born. And he had this thing. He and maths just didn't get on together. It was like they met like this, Not, nothing like this, no. Yeah. So he said to me at the end of grade eight at the state high school, he said, Mum, I didn't do very well in my maths exam. And I said, oh, Cameron, you never do, but as long as you did your best. And he said, yeah, I did my best. But he said, Mum, I wrote the teacher a note on the end of the maths exam. And I thought, oh, goodness, what now? I said, okay, Cameron, what did you write? What note did you write the teacher? And he said, I wrote, you don't have to get an A in maths to go to heaven, which was just as jolly well because... He actually got an E. If you had to get an A in maths, he would have been nowhere near going to heaven. Mm. But anyway, so here he was now at this at the Christian high school. He'd had his three days there. We were um, up at the Sunshine Coast having our little mini break. He's in the spa with me and he comes up from under the water and he said to me, Mum, I haven't got long to live. And he started going through his life and forgiving people for things they'd done to him. So I thought, oh, goodness. And then he planned how he wanted his funeral. 
Mm. And I'm there like this hanging onto the side of the spa, thinking to myself, well, hopefully maybe he means he's not going to live to be sort of 90 years old or something. He, he won't live a really long life. Maybe he'll only live to be 50 or 60 or something. Mm. And at that time I, I was trying to comfort myself with that thought. So I'm there thinking to myself, well, by the time he's 50 or 60, I'll already be gone. I'll be gone home to heaven. I won't have to wait long and Cameron will arrive. Well, no, it didn't work like that. From the time he made that statement about not having long to live he, until he was killed, he was killed a week later to the minute after he made that statement. So at least I was forewarned, although I must say I didn't expect that he'd only have a week to live. And when the day came that he was killed, it was Sunday the 13th of February, 1994 and we were sitting my husband and I were sitting having our lunch Cameron was out jogging because he had wanted to ride his his um bike he wanted he had wanted to go cycling but he had checked the bike and it needed some little part done to it because it, there was something wrong with one of the gears or something so his father had stopped on the way home from church at the bike shop but he mm. said, no, they didn't have any parts in stock, but they'd get them in in a few days. So Cameron said, oh, well, never mind. I'll just go jogging. So off he went and he was jogging. The next thing we saw the car belonging to Toddy's friend going past and going out onto the road. So we knew that Toddy and his friend were going somewhere. We didn't know whether the friend was driving it or whether Toddy was because we couldn't see that closely, but we saw that car. Anyway, we're thinking, oh, well, okay, Toddy's gone out, Cameron's jogging. And the next thing my husband said to me, can you hear those uh, sirens? He said, I can hear a fire engine, I can hear uh, police sirens, and I can hear an ambulance. I said, no, I can't hear anything. And I looked out the window, I said, well, if it's a fire engine, there's not going to be a, a fire anywhere. Not Well, not a grass fire anyway, because it's raining a bit. And my husband said, with all of those sirens, it's, it seems to me like it might be a car accident. He said, I'll just go down the road because the boys have just driven out, meaning Toddy and his friend. He said, I'll just go down and check and make sure it's not them. So with that, he left and off he went. He was only gone a couple of minutes. And he rang me up and he said, oh, it's it's Glenn's car smashed all over the road. He said, Toddy is lying by the side of the road. The ambulance men are working on him. And he said, Glenn is apparently trapped in the car. And he said, I'm going to go and have a look and see how Glenn is. I'll be home in a couple of minutes. You write a note for Cameron to tell him what's happened because we'll have to go to the hospital we'll have to go in our car and follow the ambulance so I thought oh okay well it's going to be a shock for Cameron but I, I didn't feel to write Cameron a note so I didn't but the next thing my husband came home and he just looked so white it was like the all the color had drained from his face and I thought to myself oh dear maybe Toddy's lost a leg or something but no my husband just looked at me and said, Cameron's dead, Cameron's dead, 
Cameron's dead. I said, what do you mean Cameron's dead? Cameron's jogging. And he said, no, when I was going over to look to see how Glenn was trapped in the car, he said there was quite a crowd of people gathered around. And he said, I heard a young lad talking about the blonde boy dead on the back seat of the car. And he said, the only blonde boy that I know is Cameron. It wouldn't be Cameron. He's jogging. So he went over to the car and there was Cameron dead on the back seat of the car. My husband said, I was so shocked. He said, I hung on to the car and I opened the back door just to have a look at Cameron. And he said, the great wave of peace that shot out of that car. He said, if I hadn't have been holding on to the car and the handle, I would have been flat on my back in the middle of the road. He said, it was just so amazing. And he said, while I'm standing there and this great wave of peace is hitting me, he said, I heard a voice from up above me saying, I'm all right, Dad, you don't have to worry. Nobody can hurt me anymore. I'm fine. So with that, he came home and he said, he said to me, well, Glenn is really trapped. He's in the front passenger seat. And he said the roof of the car or part of it is embedded in Glenn's head. He said, Glenn's alive, but he's not doing very well. And as soon as he said that, I knew that Toddy had been driving that car. And I thought, oh dear, Toddy was the driver. Toddy just adored his younger brother. He tried to protect him all of his life. And now there's been an accident. Toddy was driving. Cameron's dead. We can't work out why Cameron was even in the car, but Cameron's in the car and he's dead. We're going to have to go to the hospital. We're going to have to tell Toddy that. Well, yes, we did. Toddy, just as well we were standing back, he was on a stretcher and he had, you know, he had a thing around his neck and he, he'd obviously broken his arm and he was totally cross-eyed. Well, one of his eyes was, one looked straight ahead and the other one across like this because he'd put in such an effort trying to control the car. We asked him what had happened and he, he said that as they were driving along the, the road, our, our road, that they'd seen Cameron jogging and because they were on their way to pick up Toddy's car from his sister's place where it had broken down, they were going to tow it home and Toddy was going to fix it so he could get to work the next day. He said, Glenn saw Toddy, uh, saw Cameron running and he sang out to him and said, Cameron, we're going to tow Toddy's car home from your sister's. We need some muscle. Would you come and give us a bit of muscle? We need someone to help. And he said, yeah, sure, and jumped in the back seat. And he was only in the car about 100 metres. When they got to the corner, the tyre, the back passenger tyre, which was where Cameron was sitting, blew out and it blew right off the rim. And here's Toddy trying to manoeuvre this car and manage it and keep it on the road and everything. And he said, Mum, I was trying to get it to the opposite side of the road because there was nowhere to stop and change the tyre and then continue on the side that we were on. So he said, Mum, there was only one car coming from way in the distance and it was coming. And he said, all I could do was hang on to the wheel with both hands and try and eyeball the driver to make sure that he knew that we were in trouble and we were trying to get across the road. He said, Mum, I hung onto that wheel so tightly. And he said, Mum, he didn't look up. He didn't look up. Mum, he didn't look up. He said he was either fiddling with his 
phone or air conditioning or his radio doing something down under the dash and mummy didn't look up and he said so in the end I just tried to turn the car around because I could see he was going to hit us and he said I tried to turn the car so he'd hit the back of us he said I got it halfway around and he plowed into the side where Cameron was sitting he said mum but just before the car hit he said I let go of the steering wheel and turned around to the back seat to Cameron and he said I just looked at him in the eye and he said Cameron said to me I love you my friend goodbye and was killed in front of my face he said oh mum he said but not only that he said Cameron died laughing he looked at the car and he just laughed he said he sat there and he roared laughing and and Toddy slammed his hand down on the table in front of me and he said mum no 14 year old can die laughing what did he do that for? And I said, think of it, Toddy. Do you think he saw the car coming to kill him? Or do you think he saw the angel, his angel, Sonia, coming to take his hand and take him out of there just immediately before the impact? And Toddy said, Mom, he would have had to have seen the angel. No 14-year-old can die like that. So that was Toddy. Before the car accident, my son Toddy and Cameron, even though he was only 14, and my husband had started the tribe of Judah, which was a motorcycle gang in the local area. And there were a lot of outlaw bikies and people like that that hung around it. And Toddy, even at 18, would preach to the, the outlaw bikies, which I thought was quite a, a brave thing for an 18-year-old who was only five foot seven. But when he saw Cameron killed in front of his face, he stopped preaching to the outlaw bikies and joined them. And I now have the distinction of having raised the Queensland State President and Australia-wide National Sergeant at Arms of the outlaw bikies, which is what Toddy grew into. He also trains kickboxing with the Australian Commonwealth Games kickboxing team because there's a couple of people trying to kill him, which seems to, you know, be sort of par for the course if you have anything to do with the outlaw bikies. But in his spare time, I guess, he and his wife are multi, multi, multi-millionaire business people. So I, I often think when I look at Toddy and I think, you're really driven, aren't you? You're driven. It's like he's trying to live his life and Cameron's life all at once, you know, and mm -hmm. you need to sort of slow down a bit, Toddy. But no, it's been years since Cameron was killed. Toddy's now 47. He was 18 at the time. Cameron would be 43 now. He was 14. Toddy has a wife, six children and two granddaughters. Mm -hmm. But he just never stops. He never, never stops. And he, he has such such a leadership ability over his life he's amazing just amazes the life out of me but i think to myself toddy you wear the grief of this like an overcoat you just wear it it's like every day you get up and you and i i feel for toddy very much because he's never really quite come to terms with the fact that no it wasn't his fault and one of the reasons I wrote the book was I wanted to be able to assure him that I didn't hold anything against him. I didn't blame him 
all I feel for him is I wish I had the ability to make things easier for you, Toddy, because, you know, on the outside people look at you and they they revere him for the position he holds. They, you know, a lot of people I would imagine are quite envious of the amount of wealth that he has and the leadership, the people that he has working for him, you know, just everything that he can do, his abilities, all of these things. But I know that inside of him there's still there's still a, a big chunk of grief and, you know, horror over what happened and a lot of missing his brother. Our daughter, Trina, on the other hand, sort of, well, when she heard the news, she collapsed and her husband, her then husband, she's now remarried, but her then husband, who was the son of a pastor, sort of prayed over her and was very, you know, careful to try and encourage her and do everything he could to help her. And she's she misses Cameron terribly, but she's come through brilliantly. She's 51 years old now, and she's she, until a couple of months ago, had a job running Mission Australia for two Australian states. She was in charge for Tasmania, the little island state of Tasmania, and the state of South Australia. So that was a great responsibility for her. She's mm -hmm. now got a different job doing the same thing for a government, well, it's actually a local government agency just south of Hobart, the capital city in Tasmania, and she does all the hiring and firing and looks after all of the the personnel that work in in the government there. So she she's well, she was always brilliant, and you know she's got about twenty degrees in aged care as well, and she's done work in fostering in Queensland and in nursing homes in Queensland. Everything to do with helping people is what she focuses her life on. And me, well. I found that just Cameron, Cameron's faith, his faith in God was the thing that sustained me because we've had an interesting time with Cameron. I thought that, well, once he'd been killed, I'd know where he was. He'd be in heaven, but that he'd stay there, not in your life. No, no, we would have Cameron come to visit and all sorts of things like that, which I hadn't expected in the slightest. It wasn't kind of, you know, part of, any belief system I ever had, I, I thought that they went to heaven and they stayed there. Mm -hmm. No. And I, I, I had a um, vision. I'm not in the habit of having visions, but believe you me, I had a vision two nights before Cameron was killed. I was at church. We often went to church. My husband was the lead trumpet player there, so whenever church was on and they had music, we were there because he was about to play his trumpet. So we were at church Friday night. And I had a vision at church and I saw a group of people, I think it was about eight people standing there in heaven and it was my mother who had died when I was 17, my mm. brother who had also died, my other brother who had drowned trying to rescue his eight-year-old son who also drowned, so all of them were standing there. And the eight-year-old, my eight-year-old nephew was hanging on to a dog. And, I mean, if you're going to appear in heaven, you, you need to have a list of things you want to ask people because mm -hmm. what did I say? I, 
I didn't even say hello to any of them. I just said to my nephew, whose dog is that? And he said, this dog belonged to your husband. I'm just minding it for him. So I had been able to describe the dog to my husband. And he said, that was my dog, Nippy, that I had when I was nine years old. I said, well, I can tell you where Nippy is now. He's in heaven and my nephew Terry's looking after him. Well, at the accident scene, God showed me, just was like, bang, and I saw that same vision again, those people all standing there, because at the accident scene, I had thought to myself, well, this is just ridiculous. What's Cameron doing dead? I'm going to see if I can find his spirit somewhere and tell it to get back into his body and for him to get up and be alive again and run around and be Cameron. Well, I'm there at the accident scene and I'm hanging on to a policeman lest I should drop down in the middle of the road from shock. And I'm trying to discern where in the wide world Cameron's spirit is so I can tell it to get back into his body. But it just wasn't there. And I came to the conclusion that he'd gone to heaven and his spirit had gone as well. There was nothing there to tell to get back in, into his body. And when God showed me that vision again, all I could do was look at it because God said to me and I heard his audible voice say to me they were his welcoming committee and I thought to myself wow if heaven was standing at attention on Friday night waiting for Cameron and there was a welcoming committee there for him who am I to call him back so I said okay God you've got him he's yours enjoy just make sure he has the greatest time which i knew he would mm. but then we had, we had the experience where a couple of oh, it was about six weeks after the accident because we had to drive over the accident scene to get to the shops or get to anywhere and i found it really difficult but it was almost impossible for toddy mm. we decided that we would move and live somewhere not too far away, but where we didn't have to manoeuvre this accident scene all the time. So we sold our property and we had another one that we were moving into. And I was sort of packing up things and the moving men were coming. And I had remembered that God had shown me Cameron in heaven. And I said to God, I said to God, that's not right, God. He's not wearing those shorts. He, when he was killed, he was wearing his black and yellow striped T-shirt and his black jeans. And you just showed him to me in heaven wearing his black and yellow striped T-shirt and his green and yellow board shorts. I know he's not in heaven wearing his board shorts because I washed them just a couple of days ago. I washed them. They got dried. I ironed them. I folded them. And they're in the third drawer of his wardrobe. Hmm. And I heard voice again saying to me are they you won't find them and I thought to myself yes I will I know exactly where they are and we went all through that wardrobe no board shorts no board shorts no board shorts and my husband said if he's come down from heaven and he's swiped his board shorts that's one thing but if he's taken my trumpet he's in big trouble <laughs> so so we had a look. No, he hadn't taken the much-loved trumpet. Thank goodness for that. But mm. when it came day and the moving men were there and about to shift that wardrobe, I thought to myself, I'm going to feel like a right fool if they pull that wardrobe out 
and there are the green and yellow board shorts stuck in there behind it. I would have no idea how they got there, but I'll feel really stupid if they're there. Well, they pulled the wardrobe out, no board shorts, but behind that wardrobe was a wooden cross about oh, this long that Cameron had made and he'd signed it, he signed his name on it, on this cross. So I thought, wow, he wasn't only remarkable on earth, he's still remarkable in heaven. He, he's just not behaving like any other dead person I know. Mm. So this, this was Cameron's story. This was what he did. And when we had his funeral, because he was an athlete, the pastor who was going to take the funeral, or actually his celebration for his life is what we had, and we did it exactly how he wanted it, how he told me in the spa, the pastor said to me, he said, on Sunday after church, which would have only been like 20 minutes before Cameron was killed, he said Cameron had come up to, the pastor was a pastor of a church of two and a half thousand. So out of all those people, Cameron had come up to the pastor and had said to him, I want to be a preacher. Can you show me how to get started? And the pastor had said to him, will you be here for the meeting on Wednesday night? And Cameron said, yes, I'll be here. So the pastor said, okay. He said, I know you're only 14, but I think you're ready. I'll bring all my notes for you and we'll get you started on your road to being a pastor or, or a preacher. But on Wednesday, the pastor actually buried him. However, um, he said that, that would have been Cameron's last request on earth, that he wanted to be a preacher and can you show me how to get started? Mm -hmm. And then we had said to the pastor, will you do his funeral? And he said, yes. He said, but Cameron wanted to preach. Is it okay if I preach at his funeral? I said, I'll go for your life. I said, I think if you don't, Cameron will jump out of heaven and grab you by the throat anyway. You'd better preach. So he said, yeah, I'll do that. And he actually did a, a fantastic farewell for Cameron, but he also preached and the the subject of his sermon was who will take the baton of faith from Cameron's hand and run with it. And he did that because of Cameron being an athlete. So mm. the other thing that we found particularly interesting too was that after Cameron was killed, they also had an autopsy, which is usual here if somebody dies unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And so... There were all sorts of results to the autopsy, but the one that intrigued me was that the person doing the autopsy reported that Cameron's left leg had been dislocated in the accident, but when he got to do the autopsy, he said the strength of his leg muscles had pulled that leg back into place. And mm. I remembered Cameron saying, Mum, the leg muscles are important. And I think he would have been hugely proud that mm. his very, very good leg added leg mm. back into this. Yes. So, mm. you know, there have been lots and lots of tears for Cameron and lots of feeling down and things like that. But I have to report that if it wasn't for Jesus and Cameron's faith, what Cameron taught us, and the fact that Jesus picked us up and carried us, well, me particularly, not so much the other. My daughter, yes, 
not so much Toddy because I think Toddy was just too heartbroken because mm -hmm. he'd been the driver and he blamed himself. My husband has found it very difficult, just very difficult. But because I walked with Cameron through his life and I was the one that he came to when he walked and talked with Sonia, when he, you know, saw visions of angels, when he did all of this sort of thing, I know that it was Jesus, it was God that just picked me up and carried me through it. So it was mm. like that pop about the footsteps, you know, where were you when I was going through all this? Well, there were two sets of footsteps and now there are only one because I picked you up and I carried you. Mm. I have also had the remarkable experience. Uh, it was only a couple of weeks after Cameron had gone home to heaven that I was standing in church. Well, the whole congregation was standing. We were all singing. And suddenly I felt Cameron's presence beside me on my right-hand side and he was ever so much taller. I couldn't see him, but I could sense that he was ever so much taller than he had been on earth. And he'd been quite tall. He had been taller at mm. 14 than, than Toddy is at 47. So, and Toddy still has size 7 shoes. And Cameron at 14 was wearing size 12. He was going to be well over 6 feet. But here he was, he, he would have been about seven feet standing beside me and I could feel the weight of his left arm down across my shoulder and down my back and I heard him say to me, Mum, take one step with me. Well, one step was all I could take because there was a row of people in front and a row of seats. So I took one step and I find myself standing in heaven on streets of gold. Well, wasn't that a, sh a shock? I didn't know where I was going with Cameron with the one step, but that wasn't what I was thinking. I'm mm. standing there and I'm seeing Old Testament saints, people from the Bible, coming towards me from the left-hand side and they were all singing, lift up your head to the coming king, which is what the congregation in our church was singing at the time. Then I looked to the right and there were people from current times in current clothing current and as of 1994 anyway they were coming along thousands of them and they're all singing praise is the power of heaven which is what the congregation had begun to sing then and I'm looking at them and I noticed my mother in the crowd and she actually acknowledged me as I stood there by the side of the the golden streets and then the two groups were meeting up and going through a large large gate into an auditorium of some sort. And Cameron said, oh, let's go in, Mum, and see what they're doing in there. So I thought, well, I'm hardly going to have a fight with him in the middle of heaven and say, no, I'm not going in there. So I thought, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So we went in and there was everybody in there, just hundreds of thousands of people, and they were all singing what the church was now singing, which was majesty. So I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, I'm glad I'm hanging on to the seat in front of me because if I ever heard those three songs sung again in that order, I'd be on the floor and I would have been on the floor. So I'm standing there looking and the auditorium had banked seats. They were going up so that those at the back were much higher and they could see over the people in front. And I'm looking, thinking, well, where are we going to sit? I needed two seats beside each other. And that was really difficult to find. 
And as I looked right up near the rafters, there were angels all around, all dancing, and they had long robes on, mainly a sort of a whitish colour, but some had colour, different coloured clothes on, and they all had sandal-looking things on their feet and singing and playing trumpets and all sorts of things, a lot of noise going on. And there was God and the, the throne and there was sort of like, it was kind of like smoke coming up from the throne. Well, it wouldn't have been smoke, but that's what it looked like. It ended up, God told me, that was the prayers of the saints on earth coming up as an aroma to his his face. Mm. Anyway, and I did see two seats way up near the rafters. And as I'm thinking, how in the wide world are we going to get ourselves up there? We were there. Cameron there and I'm there beside him. Well, all of my looking for seats we didn't sit when you're in the room and God's in the room, you're either standing or you're flat on your face on the floor. Well, we chose to stand because if we were flat on our faces on the floor, we might miss something. So that that was just, just amazing. And I actually saw people coming in, carrying big sort of serving dishes, think, trays rather, and they were silver and they had all, all the smoke was rising from them and God said, those are the prayers of the saints coming up to me from heaven. So yeah. I thought to myself, wow, you know, one day Cameron's going to be doing that. And, yes, I was shown again some weeks later, Cameron coming in with the silver tray and all the prayers coming up from the church. So it, it's just been an amazing time. Just, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, grief, yes, but I look back and I think, oh, really? If it hadn't been for Cameron going to heaven, there'd be so much that I would have missed, just so much. And I'm reminded of the Bible verse that talks about a seed dying and falling into the ground and a tremendous harvest coming up, you know. Mm. And it, Cameron's life has been like that from no. the day he was born as this supposedly dead baby who was mm -hmm. to be chopped up and, you know, even now, even Sunday just gone when I was at church, my husband wasn't there because he's very ill at the moment. He's he's very ill. And he was at home and uh, I was at church there. And for the first time in that church, because we, we've moved house again and I've only been going to that church a year and mm. I've never ever felt Cameron's presence in that church until Sunday just gone. He was up on the platform I couldn't see him, but I could sense him there in the middle of the platform, about oh, still seven and a half, eight feet tall, holding his hands out like this and just looking over the whole congregation and smiling. I thought, oh, it's a pity your father wasn't there. It's a pity your father wasn't there playing trumpet, but he can barely breathe. So for a trumpet player, <laughs> that's not going to work, is it? But it's been just such a remarkable journey such a remarkable life and I really you know it's not now it's not just now that it's been 28 years it's it's been like this for quite some years I've been yes I miss Cameron terribly yes lots of tears for Cameron but yes grateful just grateful and thankful to God for mm. his provision for me and for his his mercy, the way that he's carried me, the way that he's helped me, lifted me up when I've been feeling down, you know. 
just sort of been everything to me. Otherwise, you know, I can see myself being under the ground too and sitting up there with Cameron and Cameron saying, Mother, why in the wide world didn't you go on and live a happy life? Surely you would have known I was having the best time, you know. So I'm still here and I don't intend being anything but happy and thankful and grateful throughout the rest of my life because I know that one day I'm going to end up in heaven with Cameron too and mm. the reunion we will have will shake the planet. Amen. Yes. Amen. That's Cameron's story. Yes. That's it's Cameron's story. And as you, uh, listener or viewer, you can tell that Esther is a storyteller. Now, that story is in a book. And much more, if you would go to Amazon and search for One of the King's Men by Esther Everingham. I, I thought I, yes. I, I hope I said it right. Yes, you did. That's the story. Go get the book. Read it. Wow. Such a story. Such a story. I have no words. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You are, it you it are, amazes me still. You are a great storyteller. You have great memory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm? Actually, when I wrote the book, Toddy came one day and I was in the middle of writing. It only took me five weeks to write it. I just sat down. It took me nine months to get the first sentence. And I knew, because it was all inside of me, I knew that once I had the first sentence, it would all just pour out, which it wow. did. Mm -hmm. And Toddy came to visit one day and I was in the middle of writing it. I was writing it longhand with a pen in a grade four writing pad because I didn't trust my limited abilities on the computer not to lose the whole thing. Mm. And Toddy said to me, Mother, you've just about lost your last marble now. He said, what happens if you really just go crazy and lose your last marble before you finish writing the book? Who's going to finish it for you? And I said, oh, don't be silly. I don't think I'm in any great danger of losing my marbles, boy. And he said, well, just in case, here I brought you this. And he brought me a little packet of marbles, which you'll be pleased to know I still have sitting in my cupboard and I haven't lost my marbles, so I have had to delve into them. I haven't had to use any. They're still The little packet is still intact, and I think that the brain power is working. The brain works, the mouth works, the rest is questionable. How <laughs> so old are you? I am 72. 72. Yes. Wonderful. And I have 10 grandchildren and five great-grandchildren, which I, I thank God for every day that I live to see children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Just imagine how many I'd have if Cameron had lived to, to be married and have children. I actually miss the children he would have given me because oh. I know they'd be exceptional. <laughs> but, mm. yeah, yes, I'm looking oh. forward to meeting him again in one heaven of, one of the days. or or at church or anywhere anywhere really will do yeah mm -hmm. yes yeah so thank you very much for coming to my show and uh, for sharing your story with us we really thank you for for your time yes uh, that's quite all right i just hope that people really recognize the faith that cameron had and yeah. take the baton of faith from cameron's hand and run with it because that would be the greatest thing for him. When he had his funeral and the pastor spoke about people taking the baton of faith from his hand and running 
with it. There were a hundred people came out the front to do exactly that. They wanted the faith that Cameron had. So mm. I think Cameron would have been just so happy in heaven. I'm I'm jolly sure he was there at the funeral as well. Mm. You know, mm. he wouldn't be just watching from heaven, but he would have been so just so fulfilled that he had been able to influence that many people to be interested in taking up a faith walk similar to his. Mm -hmm. So in his 14 years, he really, really did live a full life. Toddy doesn't absolutely have to be trying to live two lives at once. No, yeah. Cameron lived a full life in just 14 years, beautiful. and I'm very thankful for it. Beautiful, yes. beautiful. Beautiful. So once again, go get the book, One of the King's Men by Estelle Severingham. Yes. Uh, this has been Now Tell Us, and I have been your host, Anthony Murori. And our guest today was Estelle Park. And we are thanking you for being with us here. And for today, we are saying bye for now. Until next time. Bye. Bye-bye from Australia, the great yeah. Southland of the Holy Spirit. Sure. Yes, that's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Go thank get you. the book. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Bye.